Welcome back. And what I would like to do tonight is take you to one of the most avoided books in the scriptures. <laughs> Leviticus. And hopefully, thanks man, appreciate that. Hopefully get you either excited about it or at least appreciating it a little more. And um, so I want to I do a little bit of teaching uh, on just kind of an overview of the book. Then I want to settle in to a bit of a teaching session on the, the various offerings that we have in Leviticus. Um, talk about some of the appointed feasts because if you're going to read the New Testament, it's kind of important to have some idea of the Hebrew feasts because the Jews are celebrating them or they're being, you know, they're being celebrated during Jesus' crucifixion or Pentecost is originally a Jewish festival and all that kind of thing. We'll talk about that and um, also do a little bit of teaching, hopefully, on the, the tabernacle. Now, I have read my Bible from cover to cover many times, just as many of you have, and I do know, especially earlier on in my reading of the Bible, that more people than not get their tires spinning in the mud, not in Genesis, not in Exodus, because there's so much narrative and story and plot lines and good guys and bad guys, but then you kind of enter into Leviticus, and there's a lot of law. Do this, don't do that. And some of it is so foreign to us, whereby even if you wanted to apply it directly, it's like we don't even have scenarios like that. And so it can be a little tedious, but God put it there, we believe, by faith. And so there must be a reason for it. And I want to share some of those reasons with you tonight. Now, we did spend a little bit of time talking about the historical background and composition of the uh, book of Leviticus. And can any of you remember what, you know, I presented as sort of the overarching purpose of Leviticus. What is it, and let me give you a hint, here's a road, what is it trying to do? Okay, it's to live the right way, but more specifically, it's the way to what? Okay, thanks for bringing in some New Testament theology. It's the way to the Holy One. So, if you want to access the Holy One, you need to live a holy life. And the book of Leviticus overwhelms us with sanctification laws, with laws that help us to understand that God is so holy, if you want to get to him, you have to go through like 500 steps to get there. And the New Testament writers also tell us that the, the weight of Leviticus, the weight of the law, the challenge associated with obeying the law is supposed to do what? Cindy? Point us to Christ. So it's like a schoolmaster. Your schoolmaster teaches you, and he or she grades you. And if you don't get 100%, and rarely do we ever get 100%, we're reminded that there's a reason why that person's the teacher and we're the student, because we're still learning. And we need input from without. Human nature is bent in this direction. We think we got it all Everything I need in life is inside of me. I can do what I want, say what I want, go where I want, accomplish what I want. That's this, this little selfish voice deep inside of me that tries to convince me that I'm my own little miniature king. And when we are confronted with the laws of God, and there are just hundreds of them, literally, there's like hundreds of them thrown upon us in the Bible. We're like, oh, we just can't do this we do so much more appreciate a little word called grace, which comes to us through Christ. So um, 
we're about halfway through the book, so head on over to chapter 17 or so. And um, let me just kind of point a few things out. So in 16, and you'll kind of see this, depending on what version you have, you see some of this in the headings of your English Bible. The, uh, the 16th chapter is essentially dedicated to a series of laws that help us to understand what's called the Day of Atonement. What do the Hebrews call that? Do you remember? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So Yom means Day, Kippur means Atonement. And that's essentially the, the theme of uh, chapter 16. So if you look specifically at verse 33, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priests and for the people of the assembly and so forth and so, so on. Verse 34, and this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people. So this is like an ongoing uh, law uh, for the Jewish people. Chapter 17 are the various laws associated with eating blood. Now, uh, depending on your cultural background, you may have eaten something called blood sausage, blood pudding, or you may not mind your meat kind of bloody, and you don't associate that with anything spiritual. But why was it that God banned the Jews from eating blood? Because the blood symbolized the life of the animal. And in the sacrificial system, they drained out all of the blood from the animal, which symbolized that the entire life of that animal had been given up for the sinner. So, because blood took on a, a, a sacred sense, for God to say that, but then over here when you're eating your steak, be like, ah, it's okay to eat the meat with the blood in it, would have, in a certain sense, I believe, diminished the importance of the sacrificial system. And so I believe that the blood laws have less to do with the horror or health effects or whatever you might call it of eating bloody things, but it has more to do with upholding the sacrificial system, which in large part revolved around the sacred nature of blood. Now, this is imported into the New Testament where we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ. We sing about it. And if you've been in church for a long time, by the way, you might not think that's particularly odd, but someone coming in from a non-Christian background might think it's kind of gory that we're thinking, singing about or preaching about the blood of Jesus. So... When we talk about the blood of Jesus, we also need to do people a favor who are biblically illiterate by helping them to see that the symbolism of the blood is connected to the idea of a life being shed for sin. And uh, this goes right back to the time of the Old Testament. It has nothing to do, as uh, the Kingdom Hall has um, stretched the law into meaning with blood transfusions. It has everything to do with the sanctity of the sacrificial system under the old covenant. And then in chapters 18, we're just going to skip 19 for a minute, but in chapters 18 and 20, the theme of the laws there concern unlawful sexual relationships and the punishments that are attached to those relationships. So I want to talk about that a little bit because we live in a culture that's pretty messed up when it comes to their understanding of human sexuality. So I want to spend a bit of time on this and uh, hopefully bring some clarity. So uh, chapter 18 and chapter 20, both of them have sex laws. And I'm counting, let me see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 banned relationships that, that could be sexual in nature in just in this chapter. How many did I say? 
How many? 15. Okay, so 15 here. And 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 of them in chapter 20. Now, some of them overlap. But I want to I wanna kind of do a, a quick overview, and then I want to point some things out that I think are fascinating and kind of important. So in chapter 18, in verse 6... Here's how I want to do this. We'll identify the band relationship. Then we'll search the text to see if there's a reason given. So is there a reason given? Yes or no? And I also think it would be important for us to talk about exceptions before the law was given. So this is exceptions before the law. Okay? So you can kind of take your own notes. I'm not going to make it like super neat and tidy up here for you, but here are the band relationships that I'm seeing in chapter 18. Verse 6, you're not allowed to have sexual intercourse with close relatives. Verse 7, a son and a mother are not allowed to have sexual intercourse. Verse 7, you're not allowed to have sexual intercourse, this is speaking to men, with your father's wife. So presumably this is not your mother, because that's already banned in the previous statement. But this would be your father's second wife, or third wife, or however many wives he may have had, depending on whether his wives have died. You're not allowed to have sex with your sister. This is verses 9 and 11 either your half-sister or your full-blooded sister. Grandchildren, verse 10. Your aunt, verses 12, 13, and 14. Your daughter-in-law, verse 15. Your sister-in-law, verse 16. You're not allowed to be involved in a polygamous relationship with a woman and her daughter at the same time. You're not allowed to be in a polygamous relationship with sisters as wives so two women that are sisters you can't have them both as your wife at the same time you're not allowed to have sex with your neighbor's wife so now we're down to verse 18 verse 22 a man is not allowed to have sex with a man verse 23 a man is not allowed to have sex with an animal verse 23 a woman is not allowed to have sex with a animal and then if you look at Verse 24 of chapter 18, it says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these means, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. So right there, we learn that the nations that occupied the land of Canaan participated in all of these sexual sins what's interesting if you look down this list is what reasons are given now the first one i mentioned close relatives there's no reason given and the one about marrying your sister your half sister or your whole sister just says don't do it but there's no reason given but all the rest have reasons given to them and if you think about the two for which there's no reasons given, follow me now. These were things that what couple, what patriarchal couple committed these acts that were kind of significant in Jewish history? So who would be like a significant figure prior to the giving of the law that married a close relative, maybe even a sister or a half-sister? Abraham. Abraham. Right back to the time of Abraham. So Lot, well, he had relations when he was drunk with his daughters, but that was not acceptable. But Abraham did have a wife. Her name was Sarah. And you all know that she was his half-sister. You know that, right? So she's his half-sister. And that was hundreds of years before the law was given. 
But God never says it's detestable, it's disgusting, it's wrong, it's perversion. But when he codifies the lie, he just says, don't do it. So we could conclude then that it's not a law that is innately moral in nature, but more likely it's protective in nature. You guys follow me on that? Otherwise, if it's moral in nature, we have an even bigger problem than Abraham and Sarah. What is that problem? Eve was cloned from Adam. She was more genetically similar to Adam than if Adam had happened to have a sister. So God, what we need to understand is some of the laws, some of the sex laws in the Bible are protective in nature. They're protecting you from, from modern eyes, birth defects, a heightened chance of bearing children with disabilities, etc. But other laws are innately moral in nature. There, there, there are no exceptions to them in Scripture that are ever commended. So, if a son has sexual intercourse with his mother, verse 7, the reason is it dishonors his father. If a son has sexual relationships with his father's wife, it dishonors his father. And if you've read the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments is kind of big on honoring your mother and your father. With grandchildren, it dishonors yourself. This is verse 10. So notice that the laws themselves understand the, the importance of hierarchy in relationships. So if you move up the family tree and have sex with someone, i.e. your mother, it dishonors your father. If you move down the family tree and you're having sexual relationships with your grandchildren, it dishonors yourself. Why? Because you, they came from you. You were supposed to be their role model, their spiritual head, all that kind of stuff. And so you're dishonoring yourself. Then with the aunt, it just says, because she's your close relative. So that's more of a protective law. With the daughter-in-law and sister-in-law, it says, because she's your son's wife or your brother's wife. So there are some exceptions to this in Scripture. So, for example, uh, Judah and Tamar. Uh, the story of Judah and Tamar is Judah had a son. He found his son a wife by the name of Tamar. The guy did evil in the eyes of the Lord. God took his life. So second son, by law and custom, had to marry his former sister-in-law and bear a child through that woman who would be reckoned as his older brother's son in the genealogies of Israel. But he's evil, for God snuffs him out. So now the youngest boy, is they're waiting for him to become of age to marry his former sister-in-law times two. And the father gets a little nervous, thinking, well, this black widow is going to take out my third son. So he delays and delays and delays, but Tamar understands that she is owed a child through the third son. So she has this tricky little thing going on. She dresses up as a cult prostitute. Jude has been widowed by this time. So his needs haven't been met. So he goes and has sex with this unknown sex prostitute, cult prostitute gets her pregnant and it's exposed and first he doesn't realize it's his kid and he's going to kill her and lo and behold she's pregnant with twins and they become part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. So that's an exception to the rule. It's not, oh, that's how things should be. It's not like this is how we should live our lives. It's a bad situation. But in, in a certain sense, um, Tamar is more righteous than Judah because she understood God's commandments with regard to what we call the, the law of the kinsman redeemer. So you're not allowed to marry close relatives except 
and kinsman redeemer cases. What's the kind of most famous kinsman redeemer episode in the Old Testament? Okay, Ruth and Boaz. So uh, for those of you newer to the study of scripture, Ruth is a Moabitess, meaning she's part of the tribe of the bad guys. Who are the Moabites? Someone mentioned Lot. The Moabites were one of the two tribes that came out of an incestuous relationship between Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, and his daughter when he was drunk in his tent and Sodom had been wiped out. So when you think Moabites, you think, ew, yuck. But what's interesting is Ruth is presented as this godly woman. She marries a Jew. The Jew dies. So she comes back to, well, she comes for the first time to Israel to find the next closest relative to marry him. He basically says no. So the second closest relative is Boaz, and he marries her and the children they bear are also in the line of Christ. So these are exceptions to the rule. And while it's foreign to us, um, the Jews were pretty big on maintaining offspring for all of the men in perpetuity as a sign and symbol of God's blessings to the literal seed of the man. So if a man died in Israel without a son, that was a big deal. So if he died without a son, his wife was widowed. They would marry the nearest, closest relative. And like I said, the first son born from that union would be reckoned as his own in the family lineage, kind of like an adoption after death. So there's exceptions to these things, but never with the laws that define the act of sex as being wicked. So here's another one. Polygamy with a mother and daughter. It says they are close relatives. It is wicked. Polygamy with sisters as wives. There's no reason given. It's not framed up as being innately immoral. Why? Can you think of any examples of other patriarchs that did this? Yeah, exactly. So Jacob's two wives were sisters. So notice the law never throws the patriarchs under the bus. It doesn't condone what they did. It doesn't say, hey, that was the best way to live your life. That was like a super awesome decision. But it, it puts their decisions in a different category than decisions that are innately, innately out of the order of things or immoral. Then it says, if you have sex with your neighbor's wife, you defile yourself. If, you have, uh, if a man has sex with a man, that is detestable. If a, if a man or woman have sex with an animal, it says you either defile yourself or it's a perversion. So notice this. The, the more, so remember I said the laws are either protective. So let's just look over here. This side's protective and this side's moral. The more the laws are on the protective side, the less there is a reason given. The more the laws are inherently evil, the more there's a reason given. Does that make sense to you? So, in the scriptures, there are several banned sexual practices, but some of them are more protective in nature and some are more moral in nature. Now, these, these codified laws are some of the earliest just, and we're not even talking like about religious laws, but let's just think about laws that ancient cultures wrote. These are some of the earliest laws that started to bear down and tighten up the standards with regard to incest. And because these are thousands of years old, fortunately, in our generation and culture, we all like incest is disgusting. Incest is gross. Incest is like awful. But what we need to understand, and, and don't misinterpret me, Okay, but I'm going to make a comment about this. What we need to understand is incest laws are banned by God more to protect you than they are because of something that's innately immoral. Now, I stress this because I have an uncle who is apostatized from Christianity. And one of the reasons he would often give, now I was too young to hear this myself, but I heard it through several family members, is 
incest is wrong, and clearly Adam and Eve's children must have had incestuous relationships in order for the human race to take off. And the problem with his reasoning is he was taking God's protective laws, which have been going on for so many centuries that we often throw them into a moral category, and he was imposing those all the way back, thousands of years to the beginning of time, on the children of Adam and Eve. Let me make one more comment about this. I'm not a scientist, but, and I, I, don't, I don't know a lot about the technicalities of DNA or human genetics, but I can kind of look around the room, and one thing that strikes me is no one person here looks just like the person next to them. So we have genetic diversity here. And uh, in fact, we come from different ethnic groups, and those ethnic groups have mixed with other ethnic groups back in time to the beginning of time. Now, it seems to me that the, the, the genetic diversity that we see in a room like this would have been contained within the bodies of Adam and Eve, specifically Adam, because Eve came out of Adam. Does that make sense to you? So uh, you and I are more like, like purebred dogs, right? You know what a purebred dog is? It's an inbred animal. So you take a dog and you breed it with its closest relatives through line breeding or selective breeding, and you, you, you breed out certain traits, and you kind of set in stone other traits so that after you do this long enough, Boy poodle and girl poodles never produce German shepherds anymore. They just produce poodles, right? So what you've done is you've, you've limited the genetic pool down to a small stream of genetic material that would have previously been present in the ancestors, the gray wolves of those animals. And the more an animal is inbred, the more you have problems with teeth and skull structure and intelligence and this is why German Shepherds, their back ends give out on them, or other breeds live a long time, but maybe they have nasal problems, or on and on and on, right? Because you've, you've not only bred certain traits that you want, but you've bred negative traits into that breed of animal. And this is also why when you take unrelated animals and you breed them together, you have something called hybrid vigor, so that the offspring of those dogs or rabbits often grow much quicker than their parents grew because you're introducing more genetic material back into the bloodline. So think about this. Over the centuries, we have been sort of bred down into these streams. So Susie and I are white people. Guess what? Surprise, surprise. All of our kids are white and they kind of look like us. Surprise, surprise. And if two black people have children, they're going to have a black child, right? If two, whatever group you're from, from Asia, Chinese people have children, your child is going to look Chinese to you, right? So in, in Adam and Eve, you would have had much more genetic diversity. So you wouldn't have had the potential for birth defects because of the incredible genetic diversity that they would have had presumably for thousands of years, even up to the time of Abraham, centuries later. Somehow the guy's able to pull this off. He, his wife is his half-sister. Nobody thinks that's weird. And he has 12 healthy sons, or he has one healthy son, a couple healthy sons, actually. And they go on to have sons, and they go on. Jacob obviously has 12 sons, and on and on and on and on. And there's no conversation or commentary in the text about any birth defects, but as humanity segregates itself and segregates itself and segregates itself, you have to start to put in more protective laws to make sure that there's um, fewer birth defects or fewer health problems. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but I have, and it strikes me how practical God's laws are. That the reason why God says, do not have sex with your sister or your brother or your mother or your father is not only if it's above you or below you dishonoring hierarchy in those relationships, but if it's your sister who's more genetically like you than your unrelated wife, you're setting yourselves up for a huge problem.
And so God's laws are protective even before people knew anything about genetics. And I'll just say this because we're not going to spend all our time in Exodus or in Leviticus. But if you read a lot of the dietary laws of Leviticus, the same principle applies. Prior to a knowledge of microbiology, basically all the animals that are most likely to give you a disease or parasites or kill you are banned from the menu. So you can't eat catfish, and you can't eat lobster, and you can't eat clams, and you can't eat rabbits, you know, and, and you can't eat this and that. But other animals that are, and you can't eat pigs, but other animals that are more innately clean in nature who have meat that you could almost eat raw, if you had the stomach for it, are on the menu. And this is before people knew anything about the fact that, you know, pork has a higher percentage of parasites in it than beef ever will and so forth and so on so god is protecting his people from their own ignorance and i just think to myself you know we think we're pretty smart we're all pretty smart right we know a lot we live in the scientific age and we have thousands of years of human history after us and god's still presenting us with laws that people violate because they're like they don't make sense they don't make sense they don't make sense but god has proven time and time again that because he engineered us he knows us better than we know us and so his laws protect us any questions or comments about that any geneticists in the room tonight oh, okay so let's look at chapter 20 same kind of thing we can go a little quicker on this the difference between chapter 18 and chapter 20 is chapter 20 talks about banned relationships gives a reason and then instead of implying exceptions it gives the punishment And the punishments are not the same. So, verse 10, adultery. What's the punishment for adultery? Death for both of them. Because it says their blood shall be on their own heads. Banned relationship, having sex with your father's wife. The first one in verse 10, this one's verse 11. It dishonors your father. Death for both. Your daughter-in-law, that's a perversion. Death for both. Man with man, that's detestable. Death for both. You marry your mother or your daughter. That's wicked. Death, but a specific kind of death. You're to be burned in order to symbolize the a purging of wickedness from the land. A man with an animal. Okay, this is interesting. You might think the animal's innocent, but because people can never look at the animal the same way again, the animal dies <laughs> and the person dies. Now, Whenever I read about bestiality in the Bible, because it's one of the most heinous sexual acts, it does strike me that thousands and thousands of years ago, people were already doing that. And we think our culture is perverse. Don't kid yourself, people have been perverse since the beginning of time. If you happen to come out of, I don't know, a Victorian English background that kind of kept your perversions in check for a couple of hundred years or so and you're coming out of that utopian era into the present and you're shocked by what's going on maybe you need to travel back in time a little bit and realize that people have always been pretty wicked since the beginning of time and so way back thousands of years ago god was already putting laws in place that people couldn't have sex with animals of all things you're like well why do we have to tell people that well apparently they were doing that. And then we have some other laws here. Uh, if it's with your sister, it's not death, but you get cut off from the people. If you have sex with your wife during menstruation, you've exposed, exposed the source of her flow, which is probably also, uh, we don't fully understand this because things are lost through time, but it's probably also some connection to the sanctity of blood you're cut off from the people if you have sex with your aunt or sister-in-law you're not cut off and you don't die but you have a curse put on you that you'll die childless you might be thinking well that who cares about that that's a big deal in a culture that valued fertility and that directly tied god's blessings to the ability to produce children under the old covenant so 
not all of the laws have the same consequences attached to them. But early on in human society, God put laws in place to protect his people sexually. And he didn't even take a lot of time to build a case for it. He just said, this is why, or this is what you shouldn't do. Here's a brief reason, and if you do it, you're going to get punished. And uh, we, of course, know that all of the laws that are moral in nature are repeated again under the, um, the New Covenant Scriptures. Some of them even end up in the damnation lists of the New Testament. You know what those are? The damnation lists are those little lists that sneak up a few times in the New Testament that say all the liars and the fornicators and the adulterers and the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning if those heinous sins are actually characteristic of your life to the point that you wear the label, don't even bother telling people that you're a Christian because you're not. They're symptomatic of someone who's not yet converted rather than of someone who is converted. Okay? So that's 18 and 19. And then in the middle of all that, we have very, in, ver- in chapter uh, 19, we have various laws concerning respect for parents, which is kind of something else that's been lost in our culture today. Idolatry, uh, fellowship offerings, uh, etc. Laws against stealing. Chapter 21 to 22, priestly conduct, treatment of disabled people, uh, physical qualifications for the priesthood, bans on bringing your deformed animals, which you're kind of trying to offload from the herd anyway, (laughs) for sacrifice. It's like, no, you can keep them. Thank you very much. Um, Don't don't, uh, give your uh, second best to God. Chapter 23, we have all kinds of laws pertaining to the Sabbath, the Passover, and so forth. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about those. These are the appointed feasts of Leviticus. And I do, I I was conscious of the fact in preparing for tonight that some of this might seem a little tedious, but it's kind of supposed to. It's supposed to seem a little tedious so that you increase your appreciation for the high standards of God. And if you can't remember them all, that's kind of deliberate because it's supposed to remind you of the need for grace. So we have the feasts, which are added to the laws and the prohibitions of Scripture. What would you say, best as you can recall, was the very first sacred day ordained in scripture. The very first one. A point for Richard. Very good. So the Sabbath. Where does that come up? Okay. What day of the week is the Sabbath? Saturday. Saturday. Um, a lot of Christians still think it's Sunday. Why do we worship on Sunday, not Collectively, why do we typically, it's not like we're mandated to, but why do we typically worship on Saturday or Sunday rather than Saturday? Resurrection Sunday. Okay, we're not opposed to Saturday night services. Okay? But Christians throughout history have typically set aside Sunday because it commemorates Easter, in a sense, every week. The linchpin of the Christian faith is the resurrection. But Sabbath was the end of the week. So you work for six days. So you work Sunday to Friday, and then you rest on the Sabbath. And what does it commemorate? What God rested on the seventh day. Okay, so it commemorates creation. And God is the example of that. He rests on the Sabbath day. Is that because he's like wiped out and tired? You guys see all the deer over there? There's like four of them across the road there. So Sabbath, he rests on the Sabbath. The deer across the road. You see the deer? Does it make you hungry? No. Oh. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. Barbecue. Yeah. Um, then we have the Passover. That's pretty significant. What does this commemorate? Okay, this is also tied to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So, let me give you some details on this. It's celebrated the first month of the Jewish calendar, which is not January. The calendar's different. The first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight. It's pretty specific. And it commemorates the escape from Egypt. And then on the 15th day of the same month, so that's the day after, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which begins seven days without unleavened bread. And the worshipers present a food offering to the Lord for seven days to just remind themselves of their need to rely upon God for food. It's kind of the equivalent to praying before your meal. I heard of an old guy many years ago that used to pray after his meal. And uh, from what I understand, he told my friend this, he prayed after his meal because he was more thankful for it afterwards than before. I don't know. It's not like we're mandated to pray before every meal. I guess we could pray before, we could pray halfway through, we could pray at the end, we could pray once a day. But it's a nice tradition because it just reminds us of the need for relying upon God for everything that we have. And the Passover is celebratory. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread honors and recognizes God's provision for us or for the Jews. Then we have the Feast of First Fruits. First fruits, it celebrates God's provision of the harvest. We just go to the grocery store. I'll tell you, how many of you grew up in, like, outside of the city, in the county, or in some county, someplace? Right. Okay. So you're going to know what I'm talking about. So I always liked the idea of living in the county, but I didn't move into the county until, like, three years ago. I always lived in cities. And since I've moved into the county... Suddenly, it's like I'm more aware of the timing of the harvest. So I'm driving by like cornfields. This is kind of weird, but I'm driving by cornfields and I'm thinking to myself, oh man, I hope it doesn't rain because I know the farmers need to get that corn off. I didn't, I didn't used to think about that stuff when I lived in the city. Or I'm, I'm driving on the road and this big old tractor's blocking the road. I'm like, I'm not even going to get mad at the guy. He's harvesting food for us. So you just become more you become more aware of the fact that we rely upon the land for so much of our food. But when you live in the city, you just think, well, I just always go to the grocery store. Like, you're just not even thinking about that kind of stuff. So when we read the Bible, what we have to do, because it's almost exclusively an agrarian culture, we have to put ourselves back in, into the sandals of those ancient peoples that were so reliant upon the harvest for life or death. What do we do if the harvest flops in Essex County? Oh, ship stuff in from California or, or Manitoba or wherever, right? Prices might go up a bit, but it's not like we're going to... When was the last time someone died in Canada because of a famine? What? That would be like front page news because we have so many food sources but people even not too long ago didn't have that so the first fruits brings you would bring the sheaf of the first fruits of harvest to the priest so when you go out your field let's say you're growing wheat that first cut you bind it up you tie it up you don't run home and make a loaf of bread out of it you bring it to the priest who represents God and his holiness. And what do they do with that? They wave the sheaf. There's some drama in it. Actually, there's a lot of drama in the Bible. Okay? A lot of modern Baptistic sorts thinks the Pentecostals made up drama. 
But actually, there's a lot of drama in the Bible. And they're waving this sheaf, this visual expression before the Lord. And on the day the sheaf is waved, a male lamb, a year old without blemish. Don't bring, bring the one that got his ear bitten off by a coyote. Don't bring the one with a, uh, an injured leg. He's offered as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then the grain offering with it is two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil. Remember in the Old Testament? I'm going to give you oil and wine. Oil was a choice commodity, and it symbolized God's blessings upon his people, as well as a drink offering of wine. So this is the, this, by the way, is the theological basis for tithing uh, in the scriptures. When we give to the Lord, we give to the Lord, we give not out of our leftovers. We give out of our first fruits. First fruits? Are we supposed to give bananas this week? No. The first fruits is tied to this idea that if we recognize that all provision is from God, then our first thought is, okay, I have my paycheck. The first thing I do with my paycheck is I give a portion to God. I don't run out and pay all my bills and go for a meal and go to the movies and then see what's left in my account. Even if it's a lot and right out of that, it's, 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 it's the other way around. Because the reason why we give is not because God needs your money. It's because you need regular reminders of how much you are reliant upon God. But the same problem with the whole grocery store thing is what often hinders generosity in Western cultures. Because few of us have ever starved or few of us have literally seen our bank account go to zero permanently. There's always someone we can call. There's always a social agency. There's always a soup kitchen. There's always a church. There's always a friend, you know, on and on and on. There's always an RRSP we can cash in. Few of us really understand what it means to rely day by day upon the Lord for our provisions. But these, these laws forced the people to remember that. And... Uh, I like reading about this kind of stuff and thinking about it because it reminds me not of the laws that I'm supposed to follow. I actually don't um, care too much about laws. I'm, I'm more interested. The word that comes to mind is patterns. I think that's a really good word. We need to kind of talk about that more. So people are like, oh, is tithing a, a... If someone says to me, is tithing a New Testament law or not, I'm tempted just to think, I don't even like you. Um, why are we even having this conversation? Who cares if it's a law or not? Is that, is that how you live your faith? Like, is that what you really want to know? Um, like, is your faith so immature that you're focused on what should I do or not do? What did God tell me to do or not do? Like, really, that's where you're at? If your heart is enlarged for God, you're going to want to worship him walk with him, work for him, as we talk about in our church. And if you're trying to figure out like, what does that look like, rather than looking to the scriptures for laws, why not look to the scriptures for patterns of behavior? And one of the reasons why I like the idea of tithing as a baseline for Christian generosity is because it was practiced before the law by Melchizedek and Abraham. It was codified under the law, and it was commended by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. So I don't care about the law part. I'm just seeing a pattern there, before the law, during the law, after the law. That's a pattern to me. And if it's a pattern, then maybe it's something for us to consider as a worthwhile pattern, not a law, but a worthwhile pattern for us to live our lives by in some way, shape, or form. And then we have the next feast, which is called the Feast of Weeks. I'm 
Now, the Feast of Weeks is also known as Shavuot or the Feast of Reaping or, as you know it, Pentecost. Pentecost. So this begins seven full weeks after the Sabbath from the day that the worshiper brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Normally that would land in late May or early June. And on day 50 then, the worshiper presents a grain offering of uh, new grain to the Lord. So we have the Passover, 50 days forward, we have Pentecost. And um, it changes every year depending on the calendar. So when we celebrate Easter, notice like Easter's late this year. So it's like anywhere from middle March, like late April, like who keeps changing this? It's based upon some lunar calculations and all that. But whatever date Easter is, you count 50 days forward and you have Pentecost. How many of you grew up in churches that celebrated Pentecost in your churches? One, two, three. You didn't? Yeah, I thought you would have. So very few churches celebrate Pentecost, but a few do. In the Pentecostal church? Yeah. Okay. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then a lot of Mennonite or Anabaptist traditions also celebrate Pentecost even today. So in the Old Testament, the worshiper would bring two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah of flour. And this celebrates the giving of the Ten Commandments at... Mount Sinai, 50 days after the exodus from Egypt. So, Passover, think back to Moses, the original Passover. They go out into the desert. 50 days later, Moses receives the Sinaitic law, right? And Mount Sinai, by the way, there's been studies done on how some of the events of Mount Sinai are actually condensed and symbolized in the tabernacle so the 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 high priest i know he's not the high priest but he's symbolizing that to the people aaron, aaron was a high priest but moses the the representative of the people goes up into a sacred place where no one else is allowed to go that's parallel to going into the holy of holies where no one else is allowed to go having an up close encounter with god and then coming out with a word from God for the people of God. So there's that symbolism in Sinai, which is kind of reflected in the architecture of the temple or tabernacle. And that's 50 days after the exodus from Egypt. So Pentecost celebrates that. And the worshiper must present the bread, with the bread, seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. Can we all say expensive? Expensive? Like if you're a hobby farmer today, maybe you can pick up a, I don't know, beef cow for eight or 900 bucks. And you could pick up maybe a lamb for a newborn lamb for 50 or 60 bucks. Well, you start adding all that up. And in a culture that relied upon those, not for a hobby, but for food, we're talking about a, like a sizable installment over and above your tithes to the Lord at Pentecost. And then you must offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year as a sacrifice of peace offerings. You start adding it up, you're probably talking about these people in the sacrificial system. And with the codification of tithe and giving away maybe 20 up to 25% of their income with no social security net to back them up. But they did it. So we have uh, Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And what happened to Pentecost and Acts? Right. Fulfilled what prophecy? What, what book and chapter? You should know this one. Joel. Joel. Joel 2. So Peter says it right there. It's a film of Joel. He quotes from Joel. And seven centuries earlier, Joel prophesied that a time would come when young men would dream dreams and 
so forth and so on, and the Holy Spirit would be poured out. So that's the first time in Scripture and moving forward where the Holy Spirit now is spoken of as being in us. Back here, he was on or upon, in or into. So we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit now from Pentecost forward. Then we have the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> so Rosh Hashanah Should I spell it right for you? Yeah. Also known as the Feast of Trumpets, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, the worshiper observes a day of rest. And this memorial is proclaimed with the blasts of the shofar, the trumpet. So it's like a annual super Sabbath. You get like an extra Sabbath on the first uh, day of the month. Pardon me? Family day. Fam yeah, it's kind of like family day. <laughs> but with uh, more of a spiritual meaning. And then let me give you a couple more. The next one is arguably the most well-known. It's the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Or... Yom Kippur. Okay, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's now on the 10th day of the 7th month. The 10th day of the 7th month is the Day of Atonement. Under the Old Covenant, we no longer have a standing temple, but under the Old Covenant, that's the day when who would do what? Anybody know? Okay. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. What was in the Holy of Holies? Ark of the Covenant. Once a year. I think there'd be like cobwebs everywhere and dusted off. Goes in once a year. And only when the cloud appears over the ark. He sprinkles blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. So remember the, the Ark of the Covenant? You had to put poles in it. You can never touch the Ark. You had to carry it by the poles. Once in a while, somebody would try to hold it because it was falling and they'd die on the spot. You're like, oh, come on. Why is God so mean? Even in accidents, God was with a loud speaker yelling at the people, I am holy. I am holy. And the way to the Holy One is not easy. And then you got the cherubim on the top with their wings overstretched. And they would cast the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. Then there's five animals. You count them out. Five animals that are presented. A priestly young bull for his own sin. So this, the priest never said, we're awesome, we're perfect. No, we have to offer our own sacrifices. Then a priestly ram as a sin offering. Then the people's first goat becomes the scapegoat determined by casting lots. What's a scapegoat? In, in modern English, we say that's a scapegoat. What do we mean by that? Yeah, blame everything on that guy. So I, I've done something wrong, but I'm never going to admit it. It's all Richard's fault. He's my scapegoat, right? Let's just blame it on Richard. It's like the Mikey made me do it kind of thing, right? And that imagery or that saying comes from this, where the scapegoat is this goat, and they symbolically cast all the sins on the goat, and send it off into the wilderness. And I want to come back to that in a minute because there's some fascinating teaching on that in the scripture. Then the people's second goat becomes a sacrifice to the Lord. And that one's slaughtered and sacrificed. And then the people's ram is offered as a sin offering. So the priests bring two. And then the, there's three animals offered for the people for their sins. So let's talk about the scapegoat a little bit more. 
the scapegoat, here's how it worked. The goat was brought and the hands were laid on the goat and all the sins of the people were confessed over the goat. It's then led into the wilderness and it's released. So let's look at some biblical passages on this. Isaiah 53, 4. 